Hello and welcome to Dialogos with me, Wilmel, where we talk with some of the most interesting and insightful people in the world today. For this episode, we are joined by one of Britain's leading political commentators, Ian Dale, known for his radio show on LBC, his prolific writing career in which he has written or edited over 50 books, and his podcast for the many, with former Home Secretary Jackie Smith, among other things. As well as being a journalist, Ian has seen politics from the inside as well, as a former parliamentary researcher and lobbyist. Thank you so much for joining us uh, for the episode. Hi, looking forward to it. Um, So just starting off on something I I hinted at uh, in the introduction is that you've been on both sides of um, the political sort of coin. You've been in it, you've been a lobbyist, you've been a parliamentary researcher, chief of staff to David Davis, but you've also had a really successful career subsequently as a journalist. Um, How has being on the inside influenced you as a journalist in your style do you do you get it more do you get where well, politicians yeah I, I, I think I do because I I know how they think so if I'm doing an interview with a politician and asking questions I kind of know the questions that they won't want to answer probably um, yeah. one thing you missed out though is I actually stood for parliament once and the reason I'm doing yeah. the job that I do now on LBC is because I didn't get elected so um, but and and doing also standing in an election that gives you a real insight into all the pressures that there are and maybe conversely also and sometimes I'm accused of this I have maybe a bit too much empathy with them because I know what they're going through and um, particularly during election campaigns um, but I, I think it's good to have done it there aren't actually many people who've um, done it my way round. You often get people doing it the other way around. Um, so, so I'm assuming you have quite a few links with politicians and friendships with them. Am I? Yeah. Am I, is that true? Does that, how does that, how does that translate into your interviews with, with them? Well, it it shouldn't affect them at all. Um, Two of my best friends in politics are David Davis, who I've known for, well, since he was first elected in 1987, and Brandon Lewis, the former cabinet minister. And they tell me that they think I'm the most difficult interviewer that they encounter because they, and then they accuse me of um, overcompensating for the fact that people know that I'm friends with them. Now, I don't think I do that. I think I treat them the same as anybody else. But, I mean, people will have to judge that for themselves. Adam Bolton, um, former political editor of Sky News, he doesn't even vote, which I think is weird, because if you're in politics, you've clearly got opinions, or if you're covering politics, you have opinions. But he thinks it keeps him clean, that he he, he doesn't... Um, nobody can ever accuse him of bias because of that. I, I'm not so sure that that's really... Uh, a good idea I mean everyone's free to do what they want but I vote I make it clear how I voted after each election Um, I don't generally say beforehand how I'm voting in the Brexit referendum people see me as somebody who was a leading cheerleader for Brexit I didn't tell anyone how I voted until after it had happened Um, so everybody does it their own way I don't keep secret my political background most political journalists do um that they, they don't reveal their views i think some of them we can kind of tell where they come from whether they're on the broad left or the broad right 
Um, but I'm I'm upfront about it. People know I stood as a Conservative candidate, but it was 15 years ago. I haven't been a Conservative Party member since 2010 when I got the job at LBC because I didn't think it was appropriate. And those of those people that listen to my shows, I think, would find that I'm a fair interviewer, whoever I'm interviewing. I've never had a complaint from a Labour politician. Actually, I tell a lie. Once I had a complaint from a Labour politician because I accused her of lying. Um, I've had quite a few complaints from Tory politicians who think that I've been sort of overly aggressive in interviews. But um, you're never going to please all of the people all of the time. So have you made any enemies in uh, the political sphere? <laughs> so obviously the complaints, but um, is there anyone who... I, I am thinking in my head about Theresa May at this point uh, <laughs> and one moment... But just in general, and obviously speak about that, that would be really interesting, but are there just any politicians that you've interviewed once and they've never come back? And yeah. Um, have I made any enemies? I mean, you can make short-term enemies. If somebody thinks that you've treated them badly in an interview or unfairly, they're unlikely to return. And that's always a balancing act for any political interviewer because... Um, I mean, I don't go into an interview thinking I'm going to do someone over. I think that's a ridiculous thing to do. Um, but there, there are times when you're interviewing a particular politician and it, it just doesn't go well. I'll, I'll give you one example. Um, this was back in, what, September 2015, when the day Jeremy Corbyn was elected leader of the Labour Party. And the Conservatives put up Priti Patel, who was a minister at the time, to react to it. So she came on my programme and I just started off perfectly innocently saying, how how would you like to react to the election of Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the Labour Party? And she just immediately said, well, he's a danger to the country. He's a danger to our security. He's a danger to your family. He's a danger to the economy. And I thought, well, that's a bit of an odd thing to say. That's obviously what she's been told to say, a line put out by CCHQ. So I just said, yeah, but wouldn't you like to congratulate him? And she looked quite astonished at this. And then she said that, that then she said, um, well, it's not my job to congratulate him. And I said, no, but it'd be just polite, wouldn't it? And she just then went on about he's a danger to your family, etc., etc. And I didn't interview her for at least five years after that. And I'd known her sort of for, I don't know, 15 years. She wasn't a close friend, but we, we knew each other socially. And Pretty Patel is a good example of a politician who privately is really good company, really funny, very sparkly. As soon as you put a camera in front of her face, she goes into robot mode. Now, the converse of that is that there are other politicians who, when, when you've had a sort of aggressive interview with them, um, don't react badly, and they know that you've got a job to do I know they've got a job to do and we all, we're all adults and we move on. But Rob Halfon, who is now an education minister, one of the nicest MPs in the Commons, um, he came on my show once and he clearly hadn't been briefed as to what he was talking about. And I basically eviscerated him, which I felt a little bit guilty about because he is a nice person, but he didn't know his stuff. Anyway, later that evening, my phone goes and it's him. So I think, oh, God, do I answer this? So I did answer it. And he said, Ian, I want, I want to thank you. And I said, really? He said, yeah, you taught me a valuable lesson there. You taught me not to come on your show without having briefed myself properly. And I thought, well, you're an adult. 
and Priti Patel acted like a child. Um, and, and you can really divide most politicians into the into those categories because um, they have to recognise as an interviewer you have a job to do, even if you're a friend of theirs. Um, you can't let that friendship intervene. I'm assuming, um, well, your interview style is, is very long form um, compared to the Today programme or something where you get a politician and all, a range of, a sort of a radio, um, a radio machine where a minister goes and yeah. does an interview for five minutes. But your, yours are much longer. Um, you'll have a politician on pretty much well, most nights. Not not always. Um, obviously, if you're presenting a newsy programme, it ha- by definition, it has to be fast-paced. So a drive-time show or a breakfast show, you, you can't interview someone for an hour or even half an hour. The, the maximum you're going to ever do is probably 10 minutes. And even 10 minutes is quite a long time on those sorts of shows. Whereas on my... On my evening show now, in in the first hour, we usually cover the main story of the day and we will have a couple of guests on, each on for probably five minutes. But um, I do an hour on a Thursday where I get someone in for an hour and I either interview them for the whole hour or we do half an hour and then take phone calls. And I much prefer the long format interview because you can really get things out of people. They get all of their sound bites out in the first few minutes and then... Um, funnily enough, they usually have interesting things to say, original things to say, things that they w- wouldn't have said in other interviews. So, um, and that's the great thing about podcasts, where you can go, go on for as long as you like. I do an interview podcast called Ian Dale All Talk, and it's based on a fringe show I did at the Edinburgh Festival, or, and I'm doing again this year, where I have someone on stage for an hour. Uh, and it it goes well and and so I've turned it into a podcast and sometimes if the conversation is going well I'll keep it going sometimes for over two hours and a lot of the times people say well I had a I had quite a negative view of that politician before I heard your interview and now I think differently about it. Andrew Ledson was a good example I had quite a few people say exactly the same thing oh I'd had a view of her and now I've changed it because of that interview and I don't even regard them as interviews. I regard them as conversations. I never prepare for them. I don't have notes in front of me. I don't have prepared questions. Um, I kick off with a question and then we see where it goes. And I, I think people like that. Uh, do, you, do you think the politicians um, like that as well? Or would they, do they prefer the short, soundbite type uh, in- I think most politicians find it quite refreshing when they they know that I'm not out to get them. They know, I mean, it's not, particularly if it's a podcast interview, you're not looking for a news line particularly, but when you're not looking for a news line, you often get one. And I don't pump out a press release after each one sort of saying how what a wonderful interview it was and um, this is how I sort of got something new out of them. Um, I kind of rely on the pe- people to listen to the interviews. And actually, I'm not really even very good at spotting news lines. Um, I remember interviewing Theresa May once in Downing Street. Um, and I was only I, I was allowed to interview her for eight minutes, which I actually extended it to 12. And I remember walking out with my two producers saying, we've got nothing out of that interview, no news lines at all. And they said, are you joking? There were four different news lines in that interview. And I've just learned over the years that I'm terrible at spotting what's a news line. What do you think the biggest, um, this is probably quite a hard question to answer, but what's the biggest headline you've um, perhaps 
caused by your interviewing? Um, would you? Um, I think that there are two where the interviews became headline news all over the rest of the media. And you, you've alluded to one, um, the Theresa May one back in 20, was it 2017 or 2018? I can't remember. Um, it was after that conference where everything went wrong for her during her speech. And I'd been trying to persuade Downing Street to get her to come and do a phone-in with me, which is not something prime ministers generally do, or if they do, they do it rarely. And Theresa May is not the kind of politician that is a natural phone-in participant. Um, anyway, after 18 months, they finally relented, and we set a date for the week after this conference. So, of course, when that speech happened, I just thought they're going to cancel it. But they didn't. So she came in, and it, it was really at the height of all of the Brexit negotiations. And um, she was rather good initially, and she was answering the calls well. She was sort of displayed a bit of humour. And then an Italian lady phoned in to talk about EU citizens' rights. And for some reason, Theresa May went into robot mode and, and had no empathy for this woman whatsoever. And I then intervened and asked a follow-up question, and I ended up asking her, Prime Minister, if there was a second referendum tomorrow, how would you vote, given that she had voted Remain but was leading a Brexit government? Which I thought was a perfectly reasonable question. And um, I just saw panic in her eyes. And I'll never forget that look where she... Because known, I've known Theresa May since oh about 2000 she was chair chairman of the conservative party when i was selected as a candidate we'd always got on quite well i was not close to her but then i don't think anyone ever ever was but if i saw her in a restaurant i, I would go and say hello it's that kind of relationship anyway she looked completely panicked she said well it's a hypothetical question and i said well it isn't really is it because a lot of people are arguing for a second referendum and I think people listening to this programme would like to know how their Prime Minister would vote in that eventuality. And I expected her to say, well, I did vote to remain, but I'm leading a Brexit government, so I would vote to leave. Vote, vote to leave. But she didn't. I can't remember what she said for the second answer. So I then went back a third time. And by this time, she was doing that sort of gurning thing that she did when she, she was under pressure. Yeah. Yeah, I, and I, so I, I went back a third time and I said, well, I asked this question to Jeremy Hunt, who was then health secretary at the conference the previous week. And he said he had voted Remain, but he would now vote Leave. I said, Prime Minister, if he can say that, why can't you? And I, it wasn't an, I didn't do it aggressively. Um, I just thought it was a perfectly reasonable question to ask, but she completely went to pieces. And I kind of knew then that was quite a good news line, if I'm honest. <laughs> um, anyway, she left the studio at the end of the, I think it was 40 minutes, with a face like thunder. And um, she didn't say anything on, on her way out. And that night, Robbie Gibb, who was then her director of communications, phoned me up and was ranting to me down the phone. You were looking for a, a, a news line. That was a disgrace. It was supposed to be just a phone in. It wasn't an interview, blah, 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 blah. I said, Robbie, I asked you a question. If you hadn't briefed her how to answer that question, not my fault. Um, anyway, I mean, Robbie has since said to me that I was perfectly within my rights to ask that question. He knew that all along. So that was one. And that, that went viral. It was played on Sky News, I think, every half an hour for the next 24 hours. 
Andrew Neil um, on this week referred to it as the Ian Dale question, which is probably my proudest moment in interviewing because I regard him as an absolute hero as an interviewer. And it just went everywhere. So that was the first one. But I think it was eclipsed by the second one. And this was with Boris Johnson. And this was in June 2019 when I was chairing the hustings all over the country. And the first one was in Birmingham between him and Jeremy Hunt during the leadership campaign. And the previous day, um, he had had a row with uh, Carrie, who was then his girlfriend, in their flat in Camberwell, which had been recorded by their neighbours, who then sent the recording to The Guardian. I mean, as you do. And um, (laughs) uh, this all splattered over the papers, um, sort of raised voices, etc., etc. And apparently the police became involved somehow. I can't remember why now. So I was... I'd been asked to chair these hustings and I remember saying to Brandon Lewis on the way up to he was then chairman of the party up to the play ICC in Birmingham I said you know I'm going to have to ask you about this don't you and he said well you do it how you want I'm not going to influence you and I remember thinking well I've got to be very careful how I do this and I remember texting Andrew Neil Nick Robinson Andrew Marr (laughs) excuse me and a few others to say, really, to ask for their advice. So we get there. I go into the green room. About half an hour later, Boris and his team arrived. And Boris immediately bounds up to me and he says, you're not going to ask about all this newspaper stuff, are you? I said, well, I've got to. And he sort of harumphed a bit. And I just assumed that he would then mention it himself. Because if he'd done that, I couldn't really have asked him too much about about it. Mm. Yeah. So, because he was doing a little speech before I, I was interviewing him, but he didn't do that. So he came and sat down, and I just said, um, "Well, I think the thing that's on everybody's mind is what's in the papers this morning about the incident at your flat. What would you like to tell us?" I'm mean, a very gentle question, and he said, "Well, Ian, what I think what people are really interested in is what I'm going to do for the country. They don't want to know about all this tittle tattle." I said, well, with respect, it's not tittle-tattle. It's on the front page of the newspapers. The police are involved. Therefore, it has become a matter of public interest. And then he started talking about red buses. I can't remember why or how. (laughs) So I went back a third time. And I said, well, leadership is partly about personal qualities. And I think this your personality has come under question in the past can people trust you are you a person of morals blah 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 and at this stage the audience starts booing now i wanted to burst out laughing which i didn't but i i and i i thought they were just booing me but actually some of them were booing boris for not answering the question anyway once i'd done this five times i just thought um I'm not going to I'm not going to do a Jeremy Paxman and go 12 times. I'm not going to get anything out of him. So I'm going to leave the audience to work out for themselves sort of whether they think he's really done what he should have done. And I didn't know at this point that the whole thing was being carried live on Sky and the BBC. So afterwards, I about an hour later after it had finished, I wasn't sure that I'd done it the right way if I'm honest. And I switched on my phone and there were like 250 texts from various people, including the likes of Andrew Marr, Andrew Neil, and Nick Robinson. And they all said, 
absolutely brilliant. You did it perfectly. And that was a huge relief because I'm not a professional journalist. I've had no journalistic training. I've had no broadcasting training. Often I'm flying by the seat of my pants, if I'm honest. And to actually have the valediction from your peers was was actually quite important. And again, that became a massive interview. And I think I probably, that 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 was the one that really, I suppose, um, brought me to a lot of people's notice. You've made enemies of two prime ministers. Well, so. you see, that's the thing. I, <laughs> no, not I, quite. No, no, no but I mean, it's an interesting use of the word because I've never interviewed either of them since. Now, um, I mean, Boris wasn't prime minister at that time, but he wanted to be. And I mean, when you present an evening show, uh, it's very rare that you get to interview a prime minister, actually. So it may be completely unconnected, but it's not necessarily that Boris or Theresa took against me after those but their advisors did. Um, and I, I, I just know, I, I knew at the time that I, would, I wouldn't be able to do another interview, um, but I, I, I still would maintain that I did the right thing. Um, because you, as a, as a broadcaster, you want to be able to interview all the main people and you don't want to gratuitously upset them or their team. So there is a little game that's played, which most people never admit to, but. I mean, it's not overt. Nobody says, well, if you if you ask this question, you're never going to interview X or Y again. Nobody ever says that. But there's a sort of tacit understanding that there are limits. So, I, I, and I totally, obviously, I, I think those questions were um, the right questions to ask. And when I've watched your interviews, definitely I've noticed um, everyone's always like... Um, but you always have a respect and you're not, not partisan um, like some people are, you're, you're, which obviously is very admirable. Um, and I also noticed that, especially with your friendships and with the way you interview, you learn about disagreeing agreeably. And that's quite a big um, uh, aspect of what you do. Um, so I want to sort of move on to the whole discourse aspect and um, over your time as a journalist or just your life, how and why has um, discourse tumbled to um, such divide um, and vicious language being thrown between two sides and lack of nuance? Or does that exist? And well, it, it does exist, and that? I mean, you've just really summed up why I wrote a book called "Why Can't We All Just Get Along?" Shout less, yeah. listen more. Yeah, I was, I was going to mention <laughs> that. I'll, I'll, I'm going to. I'll put it. I'll put it in. I'll put it in the description. Um, um, yeah, yeah, I got. I had it written down. I mean, just... if I'm honest, there's always been um, a side of politics which has been nasty, but I think the internet has really exacerbated it or exaggerated it rather. Um, social media in particular, just just before we started doing this, somebody sent me a YouTube video of Margaret Thatcher in the 1987 election campaign doing a sort of question time event with Peter Sissons of Channel 4 News. And there was an audience there of about, I don't know, 100, 150 people, most of them clearly not conservatives. But there was a sort of there was a respect among them, even those that were that spoke out against her to her face. There was a respect there, which I think has disappeared in politics over the past 20 years or so, where people feel that because they can say things anonymously, 
or even if they put their names to them on Twitter, for example, um, there's no comeback. And it's perfectly acceptable to insult people that you don't agree with. And I think a lot of people have come to the view that not only uh, does do their opponents not have a right to express a view, they don't want to even understand where their political opponents are coming from. Now, to my mind, if I can't understand where someone's coming from with their argument, it's more difficult to argue against them. When I was doing debates in the 1980s on nuclear disarmament against CND, and I was speaking for an organisation called Peace Through NATO, I completely understood where CND were coming from with their unilateralist arguments. I vehemently disagreed with them, but I respected the view that they had a different view to mine. Take that forward to the Brexit referendum, which has been the most divisive issue in British politics in my lifetime, where Remainers, some Remainers, not all, but some, just view Brexiteers as thick, stupid racists. And Brexiteers look at, or some Brexiteers look at Remainers, they call them Ramonas, and believe that because they want to rejoin the EU that they're somehow traitors to Britain. Neither is true. And this is where that, that word that you use, nuance, is really, really important. There is no sense of nuance anymore. It's all black or white. People like to live in their own echo chambers, their own little silos. And this is something that I think has infected us from the United States, where if you're on the right, you watch Fox News. If you're on the left, you watch CNN or MSNBC. That, and, and we're getting that here now with, with the advent of things like GB News, where, I mean, it's, I mean, they make a pretense of being sort of impartial, but clearly they're not. Um, and you look at LBC too. We are, as, a, as presenters, unlike on the BBC, we are encouraged to give our opinions on issues, but we always balance them with guests. And if you look at the presenter lineup, there are some on the right, there are some on the left, there are some in the centre. Um, you haven't got that on things like GB News. So you're, you're kind of preaching to the converted. Uh, and there's a common misconception that presenters like me just want people to ring in to agree with us. Well, I don't. I want people to ring in who disagree with me and then we can have a debate about it. And sometimes I might change my views during the course of that debate. Sometimes listeners might change their views. That is surely what debate is all about. That's what we should all be doing, rather than just preaching to people that agree with us all the time. Are there many, um, how often, how many instances are there when you change your opinion uh, due to calls um, from listeners? Well, it doesn't happen every day. It doesn't happen every week. But that I might not change my opinion, but they might encourage me to think a little bit more deeply about something they might they might come out with something that I'd never thought of I'll give you an example last night actually we were doing a, um, a phone in on trophy hunting there's a bill going through the House of Commons today um, and I I am repulsed when I look at pictures of sort of middle-aged white men holding a gun sitting by the dead corpse of a giraffe or something I mean I, I just find it repulsive so were I an MP, I, I would vote for this bill. But I had a guest on who had the wonderful name of, what was it, Diggory? Oh, I can't remember what his surname was, but a very strange name. And behind him, he had a tiger's head on the wall and a tiger's skin on his dining table, as you do. And I was, I suppose I was up for a little bit of a fight on this. 
But he was then coming up with arguments that I hadn't considered about why the different governments in Southern Africa are against this bill, because they think it would actually hurt conservation rather than aid it. So it became quite a thoughtful debate in the end. Now, it, he still didn't convince me to, that I should be in favour of trophy hunting, but he really made me think about some of the um, attitudes that I and other callers were displaying. I mean, where, if you look at all the celebrities that are backing this, have they ever been to Southern Africa? Have they even really given it any thought? Or is it something that they just want to virtue signal about? Um, so there are issues like that where you, you, you're encouraged to challenge your own views. Another one was I remember once I had three um, men in their 50s phone in one after another in a phone in on it's either universal credit or the bedroom tax can't remember which and each of them burst into tears now i could make a theoretical argument for uh, the bedroom tax but when you hear how it's affecting people I mean, if you if you don't sort of start to think a bit more deeply about something well what's the point of anything but when, when you see how it affects people in real life uh, and so i think hosting a radio phone in like the one i do where I'm not just talking about political issues, but also social issues. I think it's knocked a lot of the sort of more right-wing hard edges off me, and I've become a lot more liberal in my views on social issues. I mean, immigration is a case in point, where we, we can talk about immigrants, illegal immigrants, asylum seekers, in a completely anonymous way. Yet, if you actually treat them all as individuals and try and understand well what motivated them to come to this country how did they come to this country why did they come to this country what have they done since they've been here and i remember doing a phone in once where i said i only want illegal people who came to this country illegally to phone in which um as you can imagine got a little bit of criticism but it, it was the most amazing hour in fact we, we extended it to two hours because the calls were just so brilliant when you have somebody tell you that he came to this country as a 14-year-old in 1999 from Afghanistan, underneath a lorry from Calais, was dumped on the M1, couldn't speak a word of English. And you think, well, what's happened to him over the last 20 years? So he told me about his whole story for the last 20 years, and he now runs a garage business employing 50 people and has regularised his immigration status. And we had call after call after call from people saying how grateful they were to this country, that um, they certainly weren't coming here to fleece our benefit system. They were escaping terrible lives and they wanted to better themselves and their family. And I, the whole time I was thinking to myself, well, that's what I would have done. If I was in a war zone, I would have done the same thing. And I said to my listeners, don't think of these people as an anonymous groups Actually, I mean, if you've got like people who come over on these boats, if you've got them staying in a hotel in your local area, instead of slagging off the government for filling up your local hotel with asylum seekers, go and actually talk to them. Go and hear their stories as to why, why they've come and what, what, what they plan to do. And I suspect that, that then people might have some rather different views uh, the, the, than they do now. So I do that sort of phoning quite a lot because I just want to challenge my listeners to challenge their own views or just make them think again. Um, going back to the whole uh, lack of nuance, uh, how has Twitter sort of interacted with this um, and just the multiplication of different 
uh, ways of expressing yourself. Um, whereas uh, 50 years ago, it was a lot more limited. How, how has that led to um, such division? Um, well, it's because, as I said before, Twitter is a relatively uninhibited space. And I'm not going to pretend that I've been a perfect user of it, and still I'm not. Um, I mean, the natural thing to do is if someone insults you on Twitter is to insult them back, but just a little bit worse. I mean, that is a natural human thing to do. And I, I've probably done too much of that. In fact, that was one of the reasons I wrote the book, because I knew that I was part of the problem. So if someone calls you... Um, uh, I don't know, somebody calls you a twat on Twitter, your natural human reaction is to go back and call them an effing twat. Um, so I've tried to moderate doing that now, and instead of calling them a twat, I'll call them a muppet or something, which in some ways is more cutting, <laughs> I think. Um, and it just... I mean, people say, well, why do you even react to these people? Most of them have got, like, zero followers or don't have a proper name. But if someone's telling an outright lie about you or that they're, they're, they're attributing views to you that you just don't have or they're lying about something that you've done, I, I just take the view you can't let that stay on the public record. You've got to counter it. Now, I don't do it as much as I used to. I probably tweet about half the tweets each month that, that I did, say, two or three years ago. Um, and I'm, I use Twitter now much more to broadcast than debate because it's almost impossible to have a reasonable debate on Twitter any longer. But it's important for what I do, for my work, for my books, effectively to, to market. I mean, it sounds a terribly sort of pretentious thing to say, but sort of market my brand. Without Twitter, it would be much more difficult to do that. So if I've got a new book out, I know that I, could, I will get sort of several thousand sales just by tweeting about it. So there are, there are times, I remember once, not that long ago, I, I was just about to go to bed. My laptop was like on my pillow and I just tweeted, another day nearer to the time when I can give up Twitter. And I know in reality that I probably will never give up Twitter, but I might well just use it to read stuff rather than engage with people because it's... I can just, I feel myself becoming an angry person when I look at Twitter, and that's not a good place to be. Yeah. Um, just quickly, before we end the uh, interview, I want to circle back to the beginning when you were speaking about um, sort of being in the political sphere um, and then becoming a journalist. Um, do you want to become a politician anytime soon, or is that sort of out of... Um, out of well, the picture. politics is like a virus. You you think you've got rid of it, and then it suddenly comes back. And I always wanted to be either a MP or a radio presenter. And I stood in two thousand and five. It was just I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. If I'd done the same constituency in twenty nineteen, I would have won. Um, but that's the way the cookie crumbles. And I tried again in 2010, but I, I took time out of the selection process because I started a, a new business. And by the time I got back into it, there were very few seats left. And I nearly got one, Bracknell, um, but it, it wasn't to be. So I decided after that election to not bother, not do it again. And I remember David Cameron coming up to me at a reception at Downing Street and saying, you are going to try again, aren't you? And I said, do you know what? I'm not. I would have been, in 2015, I would have been 53. And very few people become MPs for the first time in their 50s. 
So we're now eight years on. Um, I turned 60 last year and you certainly, I mean, there are one or two exceptions, but you don't become a first time MP in your 60s. Um, I had a slight um, wobble in 2017 when my home constituency of Saffron Walden came up and I spent 24 hours agonising over whether to go to, for it because it was right at the, the election had already been called and the MP suddenly decided to stand down. And um, I really couldn't decide whether to do it because I'd obviously have to give up LBC, which is the best job I've ever had. It's, it's well paid. And my partner was saying, why on earth would you even consider giving it up? So in the end, I, I mean, I talked to lots of friends in politics and they were completely divided. Half of them said, yeah, go for it. We need people like you in politics. And the other half said, don't do it. You'll hate it. And so I did the traditional thing. I wrote down a list of pros and cons and I came up with four pros and 15 cons. But when I see friends of mine of either my age or younger who are in the cabinet, that I'm not going to lie, that there is part of me that thinks, well, could that have been me? Would I have been good at it? Would I have made it? Or would I have been a rent-a-gob MP sort of male version of Nadine Doris in some ways who had quite a big media profile but actually would never achieve anything because if you're a maverick you very rarely get to the top or get to be a minister and the only way to really I mean I can have influence at the margins as of doing what I do and lots of backbench MPs think I have more influence on politics than they do but in the end you have to be a minister to change things you have to be able to pull the levers of power. And I can't do that from the outside. So there will always be a little bit of me that wonders what if, that regrets that I never never quite made it. But I've spent the last 12 years on the radio doing writing, doing books, and I do enjoy it. So I, I'm not... I'm not sort of one of these people that for whom becoming an MP was the be all and end all. And if it had been, I suspect I would have approached it in a rather different way. Well, thank you so much for uh, giving your time to take part in this podcast. It's really appreciated. And um, to all listeners, just obviously check out LBC as if it's not a very popular station already, but like <laughs> check that out. Um, I'm really looking forward to on Monday, I think it's the leadership um uh, the scottish leadership yeah program, uh, i i, I love really doing things i love doing things like that. that because i mean I, I have the attention span of a flea so if i'm just doing the same format program sort of every day every week um i do enjoy it but you kind of want to shake it up on the odd occasion and like i, I presented now is it four yeah, four election night shows on LBC for sort of eight hours, which I love doing. Um, I've covered American elections in Washington. Um, I like doing these sort of big set piece events because um, that really does test you as a as a presenter. And as I say, I'm I'm not trained in this. Um, so far, I don't think that I've fallen on my face, but you never know. I might do on Monday, so do do watch. <laughs> I'll definitely be watching. Um, well, so thank you so much. and uh... Thank you for listening to episode five of Dialogos with one of Britain's best known broadcasters, Ian Dale. If you enjoyed the episode, follow the podcast for more interviews with more fascinating people and feel free to give it a rating. Thanks.